Welcome to Know the Name, Know the Answers. This is your host, Sharon Lynn Wyeth, and I'm always so pleased that you've taken time out of your busy schedules to come join us on our radio show. I want to remind you before we get started that getting a name reading and giving it as a gift is a memorable gift. And so as Christmas is coming up, Hanukkah is coming up, all different kinds of uh, holidays are coming up. If you have a gift to give, especially somebody who's hard to give a gift to, giving them a name reading is something that they will always remember because it gives so much information and so many ahas in a name reading. So having said that, I just want to put that idea out there. I would like to introduce our guest tonight is Gary Rowan. Now, Gary is an author, a radio show host and a syndicated book reviewer. And you can reach him at G for Gary, S for his middle name, and Rowan is R-O-E-N at AOL.com. He does not have a website, so I'll be repeating that throughout the show. But Gary's written a very interesting book, and it's called The Forgotten Father. You know, when different people pass away, and the ladies are very good at supporting the other women that are there, but they often forget about the men. Okay, so Gary's written this book about what do we do to help the forgotten fathers. And he's also written a collection of science fiction short stories, two published books of poetry. One of them is called Look at Me World and a short story collection that's being released. And he's done a lot of writing. He does a lot of review on books. But what really fascinated me was what he said in his book, The Forgotten Father. And that's why I asked him to come on the show. So welcome, Gary. Welcome to Know the Name, Know the Answers. Sharon, I'm glad to be here. And uh, this is something that I wanted to do a long time ago, back in the 80s, when the situation of my son, or or our son, my ex-wife and and, uh, myself, had a son. He died of sudden infant death uh, four months, I think it was, later. And I had always been weary of the Ides of March because when I was in junior high, I learned Shakespeare and Macbeth. And I'd always been leery of that day, and that's the day he died. And so uh, the book, The Forgotten Father, takes the reader through the progression of the situation of my having a, a, a step family and a real son of my own and what happened to us. But what happened to me is the main focus of it, and, and I wrote it back in the 80s when it happened, 1980s. When I finally got it published a few years ago, I learned from other men around the country they'd have the sa- they'd had the same exact response, and and what I based it on or or look at is we men who care about our children that we've had die. Uh, it doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter the circumstances. We're kind of put out to pasture, so to speak, or or that's my way of of explaining it, as if we had nothing to do with anything with this child. And we're not asked by anybody, how are you feeling? How are you doing? We're not asked, you know, what we are asked is, how is she doing? And so I I wanted to do this book for a 
number of reasons. One was to get me through the situation back then and and realize that there was nothing that anyone could ever do. It was inevitable. And that I was on the route to healing as much as you can because everybody says, well, it'll get better. Well, yes and no. Uh, you you don't want to forget that child. And I have a short story in the collection Slotsky's World that I based a situation that basically I knew about. And I won't go into detail, but it is called Spirit. And I won't go into any detail about it, but the fact is it does tie in with what we've just mentioned, in a way. You know, in your book, you write, everyone asks, how is your wife? Never, how are you? Is as if people think that your son never was a part of you, and they feel about a man who cries, I am not supposed to grieve for my son. Exactly. Exactly, and men do. We're just not allowed to express it. And um, I don't know if there's a correlation between some men's behavior of lashing out. It might be. I don't know. But what I wanted to do with this book is make people aware, hey, we're people too. Where The sexes are different. They grieve differently. And yet they do grieve. And, and they, well, it's expressed maybe differently, but we both grieve. And men are not really supposed to show it because we have this belief that men are supermen, and uh, that's just not so. That's just not true. Uh, uh, the husband of a dear friend of mine recently lost his dad, and I have always had short or fairly short conversations with him. And when he was telling me that I had about the funeral because I had heard from my friend what a great job he had done on it and how much time and care and effort he'd put through it. He shared with me different things, and it's the longest conversation I've ever had with him. And oh, fantastic. It, it, it was like an incredibly long conversation, and he shared different things through email. And I was so touched at what was shared, what was said at the funeral, the pictures, the effort, the work, the everything that had gone into it, and thinking that that's an, an incredibly difficult time period to be putting all of that together because you yourself are grieving as you're doing it. Exactly. And it's it's uh, what I found out, from, and still finding out. I'm still learning from other men that they encountered the same thing. They had a child who was, uh, say, a teenager, uh, the child was killed in a car accident, and everybody goes to the wife and talks to the wife. They don't talk to him. It's as if he had nothing to do with that child, and that's just not true. And so what I was hoping to do with this book, and still want to, is have people read it, start thinking about, hey, we've got to treat men better when this situation happens, and we've got to, you know, there was a, a former... New York Mets uh, uh, baseball player recently uh, in the last year or so, and I made contact with them, with the wife, because she started a foundation, but it's all her. 
It's all her, and they were on NBC Today show. I saw them, and I reached out to her, and uh, nothing has ever come of it. But I mentioned to her my book, and you know they probably thought, well, I'm trying to gain sales. No. I wanted to establish that what I saw was the same thing that was done to me. They didn't really let him talk. They didn't let him speak. He didn't speak. Everything was through her. And that's not right because both parents lost that child and and, and due to death, and it was a swimming pool accident. And I don't think he spoke one time. And yet they were capitalizing on the fact of he's a former baseball player. I think that's wrong. When when the man is grieving, would it be helpful to to talk with the with the husband, the father, and simply say, "I'm here for you"? Because what else that's, can you say? Yeah, that's exactly what I was what was taught to me. There are several things when there is a death of a child, especially in the case of uh, what it was with us, Sid's death, and the child is carted off to the hospital, the hospital should let the parents see that child's body if they so desire. There's a reason, and that is to give a closing to the parents, and they know mentally that, you know, the, the child has died. They know that, but it establishes, and it's a comfort zone, so uh, my ex-wife and I were taken to one of the hospitals for seminars. We were the speakers, and we told them, in this case, you should let the parents, if they so desire, see that child before it's taken to the funeral home. And, you know, it's just the the, the part of the grieving process that is forgotten. And there's a lot of things that are forgotten, but most especially the way that the father is treated. And then people are always, what you learn is people are always trying to comfort you, and they're going to say a lot of things that are just going to anger you, but you have to set aside your anger. At the same time, they have to do exactly what you said. I'm here for you if you want. Those are the the best words that can be said because then the person comes and says, you know, or or ask the father, how are you? How are you doing? If he wants to talk about it, he can. But nobody ever asks him how he's doing. You know, I went to a funeral when there were five of us teachers on a team, and we had all the same students, and we met together every day for an hour because we had an hour for our own conference, and we had an hour to meet and discuss any concerns with children and or plan mutual themed lesson plans for the month. Mm -hmm. And one of the female teachers, her baby died the same way yours did. And so we all got substitutes the day of the funeral. And I remember the receiving line and they were at the end and all the relatives were in the receiving line and we went and spoke with them. And I thought, I don't know about this practice, but if I had just lost a child, I would not want to have everybody at that funeral come up like a wedding reception line and shake my hand and say something. I think that way we were asking the people that were grieving the most to be gracious to us instead of us being gracious with them. 
I, I just looked at that and I thought, when did this practice start? To me, yeah. it was horrible. And I so yeah. felt for my fellow teacher. And, and in a situation like that, again, what do you say? Well, as I point out in, in, in my book, my ex-wife was allowed to take all the time in the world for her job. And the one I had, which was the courthouse courier at uh, the Orange County Courthouse in, in Orlando, I was requested to be back the following Monday. He died on a Friday. If I remember, he died on a Friday or a Thursday. We had him buried the next day because of certain reasons, but, but we moved very quickly on it. And then I was told by my boss, you be back here on Monday. I understand now what he was trying to do, and that was he thought by getting back to work, it would help get me moving along better. And that's not the thing that should have been done. Just give me a few days to pull things together, accommodate myself and and, and the family, and, you know, so I had to be alone, so to speak, and, and, and I didn't. When I came back, people said, I heard about your situation. Well, now you got a little angel, and I looked at this woman, and I know she meant well, and I said, I'd rather have him here. Well, that's when I learned that I understand, and, and the, the parent should understand people don't know what to say, so they're going to say something they mean well, and you have to just curb yourself and say thank you and go on. And there's a lot that the parent has to do, both male and female, but it's just, it's not that people are not caring. They just don't know what to say. And medical professionals will tell you what you said is the best thing that anybody can say. Those are the best words anyone could ever say. I just think that's an incredibly difficult time period. When I read your book, I had an aha as I was reading the book. And we're going to invite our listeners to call in if they would like to share a story or ask a question. And our call-in number is 888-627-6008. And again, it's 888-627-6008. If you have a story that you would like to share, um, an incident, something that happened with you, um, or a question that you'd like to ask. But the aha I had, Gary, when I was reading your book is you talked about Nobody realizes that the grandparents are also grieving. And yeah, I, I thought, you're right, we don't even think yeah. about that. Yep. Nobody ever thinks of the grandparents, and it's a double whammy because that is their child also, either the husband or the wife. And they're grieving for their grandchild, but they're also grieving for their own child. And so it's a double dose, and, you know, like we say, Nobody ever gives consideration to the grandparents, so it's the same thing. And, you know, they're just in the backdrop. And it should be, they should be included as the children, too, because the children, the younger the age, they don't understand what happened to their brother or sister. So we have to tread lightly with them 
and ask them how they're doing and do it nicely and, and try to explain as best we can. I want to bring up something else. I did a radio interview a while ago, a year or so when uh, the book came out, and I was on the show uh, with another person. She said, you know, we had a situation, my husband and I, and I did the same thing that you're talking about with him. When I get back to Palm Beach, I'm going to talk to him, and I'm going to ask him how he's doing now. And that's what I want. That's what I want. I want people discussing this issue so that there's a general consensus of, hey, the father is part of everything, too, and should be included. And, you know, it's like when the when the parents had the child, most of the fathers were at the hospital when the mother had the child, and they were in the delivery room. I mean, I was, and my brother was for his children and uh, any anybody else that I know. And so, you know, it's a situation where it, it, it's just a dropping off point, and it shouldn't be. You know, I'm I'm curious about this because, again, I don't know what would be the most soothing or the most appropriate is after time has gone by, let's say a month after the funeral, after the death, is it still appropriate to say, hey, how are you doing with this? Oh, yes. There's something else that I want to bring up that, that you brought up. I mean, in the land of COVID, as we are right now, I wouldn't advise it. But when the funeral happens... The other factor that can be done for parents and grandparents, and like you said, you know, you have the funeral and everybody's there, and you know, and you don't want the parents remembering the child for everybody that's there. But what you want, and I know this to be true, you go up and hug them, and just hug them. I know when I was having major fights and battles with my ex-wife and her uh, daughters, uh, one of the daughters, in the house. A friend uh, saw everything happening, came up, gave me a hug, because I was Mr. Tense, uh, really bad. And when she gave me this hug, all the tenseness was out of my system. And that is one of the other factors I would recommend after we get through COVID, to just go up and give somebody a hug and say, I'm here for you. The two things, the two factors. So coming back to, I appreciate you saying that, Gary. Coming back to how long do you think it's appropriate to keep asking how somebody's doing before it becomes a nuisance? I would say, I would say, um, six, eight months, uh, but not, not constantly, not constantly, but from time to time to check on the person and just, just ask, you know, just see how they're doing. And, just and see how and, a person's doing. Yeah, it was my phone. It's, it's a yeah, non-important. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> okay. That's why I wanted to call on the home phone. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. So. That's okay. Like once a month, 
Like after the first month, just once well, a month, you're close bring it friends, up again? If you're real close friends, yeah. Uh, but but if you're not, just every so often. I mean, if you're a coworker, just just you know, uh, and just be aware and, and just just see that the person is is uh, uh, doing okay because. Uh, there are certain words, I mean, okay is not a good word to use, but it's the best one that we can think of because you're not okay. You will never be okay simply because, well, yes and no. Some people put it completely out of their mind and they go on in their life and they don't give it a thought ever. Well, it's been shown that later in life, Something happens in their life, and they have to deal with it down the road. It's better to go through the stages of grief and get through it and do what you have to. When I was at UCF and wrote a couple of stories in in the classes that I had, I brought in grief in several of the stories in the collection and journey. I mean, I wrote them for the class, and I put them aside, and then when I got the opportunity for journey, I put them in. But in the class, the students all said, "Well, I don't believe that. I I don't know. Well, is that is that part of grief?" I said, "Yeah, it is." And they said, "Well, how do you know?" I said, "I had a son die, so I know very well grief, and I know the stages. And so, you know, it, it, you can't, you you should not be smart ass either." When somebody talks like I did, you shouldn't do that. And the professor that I had, he was a good professor, but he kind of, you know, he says, is that part of grief? I said, yeah. And, you know, but one of the classmates says, well, how do you know? I said, I've been there. And, and you know, that I forget how I said it, but I wasn't happy. You know, and so we moved on to another topic. But uh, it's just people have to have more understanding for other people is what basically I would say about this book that I wrote. And as to, uh, I mean, before COVID, I was working with the SIDS organization to help promote the book. And, of course, COVID came in and and, I had some other opportunities to speak to fathers and groups. But course, everything's been put on hold, but I fully intend when we get to a safe level where we can go back to some sense of normal, and, uh, you know, it'll be a while, but, um, you know, we just have to, we just have to play safe and, and get through, and but the grief I'm talking about is basically for anyone in any death situation, but it more applies to parents simply because of the fact that the father is always forgotten. And that's why I titled the book The Forgotten Father. Do you feel that having a death of a child puts such a strain on a marriage that it's very hard then for the couple to get through this? It does. It can depends on how strong the, ma- the marriage is to begin with. There are cases where 
uh, husband and wives uh, get divorced. I mean, in our case, I'm sure it had something to do with it, but, uh, you know, it was not the underlying premise why I got the divorce, because I got the divorce four years later. And, you know, it was it was reckless spending on the part of my ex-wife and other things and other factors, and I just had enough. But I'm sure that the death of our son had something to do with it, too, and that may have been the way that, that she was dealing with it because that's another aspect that's taken into consideration, that a parent just distanced themselves, and that's one of the ways, I think, that they do. They just... They just uh, pour everything into other things, and and uh, you know, but uh, each each marriage is different. But I think the basic foundation of that marriage will survive if it's a strong marriage to begin with. Uh, I don't think strong marriages have had uh, the the parents divorce. But my brother warned me, don't get this divorce because of the death of your son Michael, and I didn't. You know, I never, I never thought about that uh, uh, being the reason, and it wasn't. You know, so it does, it does happen. But it, like I say, it depends on the strength of that unit called marriage. You know, I know that when my dad passed away in two thousand seven. There is rarely a day that goes by that I don't think about him, even though it's 13 years later. And I am so grateful for having been his child and what he taught me and everything. And I'm wondering that even you had your son for such a short period of time, but doesn't that change you permanently afterwards going through that experience? It it changed me permanently. I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how, I, I can't say, but I know it did. It made me a stronger individual, and it can make you weaker. So when there was the death of my father in 2011, I was prepared because of the death of my son. And when my mom, that I was especially close to, like my dad, because I took care of them the towards the end of their life, and, you know, that was a constant thing of going to the hospital, taking care of them, and, and doing everything that a, a son who cares about their parents does. And, you know, I I know that on, everybody said, well, you have to go out to the graveyard to see your son. I can't remember the last time I was out there, but there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about him. I don't think about my mom. And I don't think about my dad. I do all the time. And it's reinforced because I have pictures of them in the house. And I look and, you know, I I think, well, you know, those were my parents. That was my son. And I see my book. And my book reinforces that, hey, I was a father. And I, I, I am a father. And it just, it's a situation that they don't know what causes it. And so I say that, you know, uh, we don't know in this life a lot of reasons for things, but maybe it was for me to do what I'm doing of promoting that, hey, fathers should be treated better and grandparents too. And I think maybe, you know, um, 
But we don't know the course that we're on in this life. We don't know when it's our time to die. We just know that we're here. And it taught me that you enjoy your life every day and look for positive things every day. And I think my positive was <laughs> to get the divorce down the way and be out of that negative situation. And it taught me to not surround me myself with negative people. And there are negative ones you will come in contact with. And so I don't I don't let them last long and I move on. So I think that's some of the stuff that I learned from the situation. In our culture, men are expected to never show weaknesses. They're supposed to stay strong, and they're supposed to bear adversity without emotion. So did you give yourself the opportunity to cry? Did you do it in public? Did you do it in private? Um, How did you handle those emotions that wanted to come up? What were you comfortable with? I remember I did cry. It was in uh, when I was driving. It was by myself at the house. It was, uh, you know, but uh, I didn't. I didn't do it in front of my ex-wife. I didn't do it in front of friends because I just, you know, I, I, I felt it just came on me about, you know, whatever, and and uh, I dealt with it and then just moved forward. But, uh, you know, there were friends, some friends who just said, hey, I'm here if you ever want to talk about it, whatever you want to say. And they said, and I'll tell you now, there's no right, there's no wrong, and you just, if you want to open up and talk to me, I'm here. And I felt good because there were times where I did express a few things and said, you know, that, that uh, it's just, it, it will either weaken you as a person or it will make you stronger. And it made me a lot stronger. So I have a, a funny story to share about death. When my, when my sister passed away, I'm number three out of five kids and we're all girls. And my sister that's immediately older than me passed away. Mm-hmm. And it was 21 years ago now. So it's been quite a while. But my nephew at the time, that was barely six years old, came up to me and he said, Aunt Sharon, I have a question for you. Now, all my nieces and nephews know they can ask me anything because I'm very blunt with answers. Uh, as, as much as I try to be tactful, I'm still very direct. <laughs> and, yeah. and he looked at me and he goes, I have a question for you. And I said, well, I have lots of answers. Let's see if any of them match your question. And he looks at me and he goes, Aunt Shelley was number two. You're number three. Because she died, do you get to be number two now? I thought, wow, look at how this six-year-old's mind is already thinking. We all move up in line, right? That one's missing. We all move up. And I looked at him and I said, have you learned about the number zero yet, that that's a placeholder? in school and that when we don't have a number for that column, we put a zero there as a placeholder. And he looked at me and he said, yes. And I said, well, I said, we put a zero there for aunt Shelley. I never get to move up. I will always be number three, you know, (laughs) but I thought how clever of this young six year old to say, how does this work? (laughs) You know? Yeah. 
<laughs> yep, that's 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 amazing, you know. But um, I uh, I'm always doing something with my writing in the two collections and whatever else I'm writing that somehow takes me back to the situation. I won't say how, but you know, it's like I say the the story spirit and a friend of mine read it when I was working on it, and he said, I never heard that before. And I won't explain what that is, but um, it's it's a thing in Judaism. That's all I will say. And he talked to a rabbi, and the rabbi said, yeah, 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 that that's true. And so it's in the story uh, uh, spirit in, in Slotsky's world, but a good writer takes what's happened to them and turns it into fiction and unless the writers like me they uh don't let you know exactly where uh part of what they experienced or or you know part the part that's them uh, comes into play but i like to in my books explain at the end a little bit about where the story came from because at science fiction conventions i've been to that's one of the things that people always ask. And so I, I like to involve the audience after they read the story. And other science fiction writers do that same thing so that the public has an, uh, an awareness because at science fiction conventions, the worst question you can ever get is, where do the ideas come from? Or where does it come from? And I was unfortunate enough to have a really chalkboard sounding uh, guy at one of the conventions and finally he quieted down and I think he left the room and every one of us that was on the discussion at the top of it, the panel discussion uh, like Piers Anthony we just went glad he's gone but you know it's a process of where it comes from but I'm always trying to involve something that happened to me with my son and my family at that time in my story somehow. I think that's how we all learn, though, isn't it? Through personal experiences. And aren't we the best writers when we're writing about personal experiences because we can put emotion in there and real knowledge? True, but but, but what I find with so many new writers is they they tell word for word what happened to them, and that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I do. What I do is I involve somehow, and I, I don't let you know where the involvement really is of my own personal situation or a personal situation of a friend or whoever that I have heard about. I don't let you know exactly where it is because the, the job of a fiction writer is to tell a story. And as a reviewer, I've been asked by many different people, what do I look for? And in the um, uh, case of uh, a convention I was at in Chicago, Hal Clement, I think it was, uh, asked me uh, a question, and he had an entourage of people with him surrounding us, and he said, I've always wanted to ask, what do does a, a book critic look for in a, when they do a review? I said, I can't speak for everyone, but I want the author to tell me a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the whole group around him laughed at my answer. 
and then he said, that's what I've been trying to teach my writing classes for years. That's the obligation of a writer, to tell a story, whether it's uh, true crime or, or nonfiction, you have to take and involve the reader into the process. And I think that's what all of my books do, because people pick up The Forgotten Father and they go, wow. And then it's a true story. It's what happened to me, but I've seen that it's what happens to fathers. And that phone, you're a popular man tonight. Yeah, no, well, this is a friend of mine that does this. And wait a minute. He just got cut off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you can call yeah, him afterwards. He does that. Yeah. So, that, so that, that, that's what he does. So changing the subject a little bit, mm-hmm. you critique books besides looking for a beginning, middle, and end. Like there's some books that are teaching us something. Like my books, for example, they teach you how to interpret exactly. a name. There is no real beginning, middle, and end other than step one, step two, step three, and this is how you apply it and use it. You know. So is that what you would call beginning, middle, and end? Yes. Let, let me let me give you an example. Another one in true crime, and I know that very well because my dad wrote several of the books, Evidence of Murder and Murder of a Little Girl, and they followed a, a pattern. And that pattern was introducing you to the town that it takes place in or, or introducing you in some element of where it is. Then opening with what happened or you know uh, where a body is found and then the investigation and the court case. I had a client who wrote a book that I I pitched to her and then to the publisher, and it got published, and she did not follow that formula, and her book was inferior to uh, others, and the particular publishing company was quite put out with me for bringing her to them, but I got disgusted with her when we did the process of, of the contract. She read the contract, said, I'm a prize-winning journalist, and I won't be treated this way. Well, excuse me, prize-winning journalist, you have a formula that you have to follow, and you didn't follow it. That's why the book was never any good. And so what I'm talking about is you have to hook the reader with something until, like yours, yours hooks me. I'm reading it now. I'm going to be doing a review uh, on on the uh situation of the placement of letters in your name and uh, different aspects. And so you have to make it interesting for the person to want to continue to read. And I would say your beginning is to introduce. Your middle is to keep the reader wanting to read it. And the end is you sum up what you've said all through it, say, for nonfiction. And I'm sure... Just because of the writing that I'm reading, you're going to do that. It's just I started yours uh, yesterday, and all of a sudden I've got 10, maybe 15 books that came my way out of nowhere. So I'm always reading and always doing, and I just learned from the process of other writers. One of the things that I've noticed is so many writers use the same exact word 
over and over and over and over again. And I learned that from Danielle Steele, who uses and button suddenly 16, 20, 40 times. It used to be 40 times a page. So I used to train authors to read Daniel Steele, read 60 pages, cross out where it's not needed, and they thought, well, I don't use those words. But what it taught them is to look and see how many times in a sentence do you use the word car when you could say automobile, you could say the Mustang, you could say the Ford, you could say the, the you know, whatever, the convertible, to explain that car throughout that paragraph. There's nothing worse than overuse of words. And people do it all the time. Writers do it all the time. In conversation, it's a little different. I don't expect it in conversation. But I do with the writing. But so in conversation, in conversations, we actually do get bored or turned off or your listener, or we stop listening when somebody's using the same words over and over again, or especially exactly. the filler words, like, you know what I mean? Or those exactly. kind of sentences, it does. It makes it very hard to stay attentive when yeah. you're listening, no matter how much you want to hear what they have to say. Exactly. Especially in an interview, uh, what I try to train authors is don't go saying, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, because it gets old. It gets, it, it, and it's not needed. So I try to guard against that by saying, not saying, you know. But as a writer, I feel it's my obligation to speed the work along to keep you with a flow that you want to continue to read. And everybody I've talked to who's read my books or has reviewed them, they love them. They, they love them. And, and I'm so sitting back going, I just love this. I mean, uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with the acclaim I'm getting, and I appreciate it. And the other thing is I have some friends, and they say, well, you're a big author, and da 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 And I say, hey. I'm not any bigger than anybody else. I'm just having fun doing what I'm doing and, and, and doing it to the best of my ability and having a good editor work with me to get my work out to the public. So I have a question for you. Coming back to uh, sure. the grieving and the death of a child, are there other books out there like yours that deal with um, a, a, a father's perspective on how to deal with the death of a child? I don't think so. There are other books that I've seen about grief, but I don't think they approach from the father's perspective. I don't recall ever seeing one, and I've been in this business since the 1970s, 1973 to be exact, and I can't recall seeing any other books about the father aspect of grief. There are grief and children and grief and grief and grief, but I don't recall ever seeing one like mine. So I have another question for you, Gary, and that is what seemed important in your world and in your family after the death of your son did that shift, did that change your priorities or what was really important to you? Oh, sure. It, it did. It, it made it where I looked at life and said, I'm here. 
I don't know why it happened, but I will one day maybe learn. Uh, one day when I'm gone, I may see my son. I don't know, but but I just I want to be the best person I can be. Uh, taking a, a little thing from the Marines of be the best you know you can be, but but I just try to do the best that I can in everything that I do. And I'm very humble with people. I treat them with respect and dignity unless they don't mean. Sometimes I can be very belligerent on the phone with uh, agencies like banks or something, but, but the thing is they're, they're, they're not listening to me. But overall, I think it taught me to just appreciate what I have in life and what I'm trying to do and then just move forward. You know, every step of the way that I can. And value the friendships that I have throughout the country because you and I came into contact from Diane and Doug. And and I respect and and value my friendships all across the country, all across the world that that help me and I help them. and, And that's what friends are for. And... I think that's some of the thing. Those are some of the things that I learned from the experience that I took away with it. And stuff so in this time of COVID, I have heard for various reasons, not just COVID, of multiple people passing. More of my friends seem to have people that they know that are passing at this time. Um, what would your, be your suggestion on how to support people that we know? who are right now losing people that are important to them. Same thing. Just <coughs> tell them I'm here for you. And, again, I would not advise people to hug each other, but I'm here for you. I'm an ear if you want to talk about it, but don't force the issue because people try and force it too. And just, you know, uh, when the person wants to, they'll open up and you know, tell them also, write things down. Write how you feel. That's what I did. That that was the evolution of this book. There's a lot more that I wrote that was not used, so maybe I'll do a volume two. I don't know. But the, the, the form that I wrote this in, as you can see, is very short and to the point. It's a different style from what you read of my short story collections. Very different writing, and it's not the typical poetry but that's the way I've always written my poetry. And I started my first book, Look at Me World, when I was at junior college at Valencia in a logic class, and his voice was like chalk, you know, grading on chalk, uh, on the chalkboard and, you know, whatever. And so I'd sit in the class and I'd start writing these, what I'd classify as poetry, and just... Every day, class members, when we left, said, what would you write today? What would you write today? <laughs> well, I pulled it together, and that was Look at Me World. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It reminds me of uh, my very first year of teaching. I was teaching ninth graders at a junior high. And every day, I, if they were well-behaved in class, I had a joke for them. Um, mm. Stupid jokes for junior high kids, like how do you cook yeah. toilet paper? You know, you brought yeah. it on one side and you throw it in the pot. You know, just yeah. silly jokes. But right. every day I had a different joke. 
And one of my students wrote it down every day, wrote it down and then illustrated it according to his way of drawing. And at the end of the year presented me with his notebook of the daily jokes. He Uh says this way, if you need another joke and you're not coming up with new ones, you can come back this way, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know. And, And it's just, it was amazing to me, but it told me something about myself. I had known this all along. When I was in Boone High School here in Orlando, I had a teacher who was a battle axe, and uh, often I put out on the Boone High School um, Facebook page, uh, class of whatever, I put, who remembers this battle axe? Well, I was thrown out of school because of it. And what happened was, it was 1969. The graduate had come out in 67, 68. There was still emphasis on Dustin Hoffman and Mrs. Robinson. This teacher thought that what I wrote for this little writing class we had was the graduate. You could not budge her on it. So I got mad because she she told me to write another story. I got so mad. Little did I know I would be predicting society. I placed it on another planet I placed it in school. It's May the 2nd, the official school day, and the students get to withdraw any teacher they don't like from existence on the on the whatever by any means that they see fit. Little did I know that a few years later we'd start having the violence in the schools that we see so common now. And I almost got thrown out because I was told to write another story and it better be you know kosher so to speak well i still was mad at the teacher but i got in one joke that everybody picked on picked up on but she didn't the character's name was dickie tucker but he wrote his t's like f's she didn't she overlooked that so I had the last word that's when I knew I was a writer because of the power of my words and what they could do I think that's why I leaned towards science fiction because at the time in Boone we had a library and they sold paperback books and at that time they were 50 cents, 95 cents for a paperback. And I read uh, science fiction writer Andre Norton, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov in those editions. Little did I know that years later, one of my best friends would become Andre. And she lived here in Orlando. And I was attending a birthday party for her. And she just she just loved me. I loved her. She was one of my favorite writers. I've always called her the Agatha Christie of science fiction because she had maybe 150 books. And she was very giving back to the community of science fiction, bringing in a number of writers. And then here I am <laughs> writing my own science fiction. But among the science fiction writers today, there are many of my friends. And I read them growing up, many of them, and uh, it's just it's just such a tribute to know that I was on the right track so many years ago, and and the power of my words, 
and that's why I think that Forgotten Father should be talked about. Uh, people, more people should uh, know about the situation, and hopefully, it will be a ground changer to change the way that fathers are treated, the way that grandparents are treated. Well, the Forgotten Father is approximately 25 pages. It's not that long, but it's written like a poem, and it's very powerful all the way through. It says The Forgotten Father Coping with Grief by Gary Rowan. And if you would like to communicate with Gary, his email is G for Gary, then an S, then Rowan is R-O-E-N, and it's at AOL.com. He does not have a website. So again, if you would like to connect with Gary, it is G-S-R-O-E-N at AOL.com. And of course, you can always find the spelling and the link for the archives um, on my website, knowthename.com, and then just go to well, the I do have one. page. I do have a website. Uh, oh, you that do is now. legacybookpublishing.com. It's uh, legacybookpublishing.com. That's where people can uh, get a cop- uh, copy of uh, my science fiction collections. Uh, Journey and Slotsky's World, and there's a place on there that if they want to contact me directly, the publisher will do so. Wonderful. Last time we talked, you didn't have that. I'm gl- I'm happy to hear that. So it's LegacyPublisher.com. Oh, yeah. I just added that to I just added that to the my oh, website so that people could find you easier. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. great to know. Okay. Um, we don't have very much time left, just a few minutes. Is there anything you'd like to say about the Forgotten Father before our program concludes? No, uh, I think we've summed up basically everything that I wanted to do. I just hope that people will talk about it and and want to uh, get uh, copies from say, Amazon or, or Books a Million, where they have Nook and they have uh, e-books, uh, uh, Kindle, and, and talk about the book. And I hope, it, uh, I hope it helps other people going through the same thing and that, that think about fathers a little different from now on. And grandfathers and grandparents yeah, as a whole. Exactly. Thank you, Gary, for taking and your time the, to be with kids. us. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking your time to join us. Um, Welcome. Thank you for having me. Next week, it is the first Thursday of the month in December. That means it is my turn to answer your questions based on the letters of your name. So next week, please tune in and let everybody know that you can call in and get your name interpreted or whatever question you have. I use your name to get the answer from. Thank you again for joining us on Know the Name, Know the Answers. This is Sharon Lynn Wyatt signing off.